question the important issues of today and try to find a sort of spiritual connection? Welcome to Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman as your host. Religion deals with the most fundamental issues humans face. There are arguments for and against the existence of God, where religion belongs in everyday life and a number of questions left unanswered. This is where it all gets discovered. Now, here is Father John Holloman. Hello again. Glad to be back with you. I covered a great deal of historical events last week, so I think I'll begin by uh, just recapitulating some of the things to get to the setting for what we're going to be talking about today. And basically, we're going to be talking about the Deuteronomic Reform. What that word means will come along shortly. The background to all of this is the long reign of the uh, Judean king Manasseh, who reigned from 687 to 640 BC, which coincided with the zenith of Assyrian power and prestige. At one point, even Memphis, the capital of Egypt, was taken and the pharaoh made captive. Manasseh seems to have bought peace and secured his own throne by playing the part of an obsequious vassal. And indeed, throughout this period, Judah was left alone. His policies could not help but aggravate those who remembered the reforms of Hezekiah. His policies promoted the amalgamation of Yahweh worship with that of Baal. In other words, Yahweh was worshipped at the altars of Baal. The emblem of the mother goddess Asherah was made, and sacred prostitution was practiced. Now, the astral cult of Mesopotamia also was imported, which is the worship of all the host of heaven, um, was introduced to the temple in Jerusalem. If you remember at the beginning, back in Genesis, I said the sun and the moon and the stars were all considered divinities by the ancients. He revived the old cult of the dead, necromancy. He resorted to human sacrifice by having his own son burned as an offering. And he seems to have enforced his policies ruthlessly. He shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Hence the tradition of of Isaiah's martyrdom. In short, he bought peace at the price of surrendering Israel's distinctive religious heritage. Heretofore, the focus had been on the Davidic covenant, but something obviously had gone wrong. Manasseh's son, Amon, lasted only two years before being murdered during a patriotic revolt, at which time the boy king, Josiah, who was only eight years old at the time, came to the throne. He reigned from 640 to 609 B.C. He ascended to the throne just seven years before the death of Ashurbanipal in 633, who was the last of the Assyrian monarchs strong enough to hold the empire together. Assyria's demonstrated inability to quell revolts after his death, when Josiah was 15, meant that Judah was ripe for a radical change of policy. At this time, uh, the prophet Zephaniah uh, comes on the scene. He was probably a Jerusalemite, since he mentions the city at districts by name, and before the great reform of 621. It must have been shortly after the death of Ashurbanipal. He echoed Amos and Isaiah, 
by announcing the day of Yahweh as a day of wrath, denounced the worship of alien divinities and the complacent notion that Yahweh was impotent to do either good or ill, and announced that a remnant would be saved from the Holocaust, a word meaning whole burnt offering. Now, the early years of the prophet Jeremiah also come along at this time. Like Zephaniah, he protested the religious syncretism that had all but erased the distinctive element of Israel's faith. He also called for reformation, not just of externals, but especially of the heart, the seed of our loyalties and affections. Circumcision of the heart means humble submissiveness to the will of God as opposed to one hardened and stubborn rebellion. Um, and that, I think, the last part of that sentence describes a great deal of the population today. His was a call to break up the hard ground that encrusted the lives of the people. Now, Josiah's first efforts at reform was the 12th year of his reign in 627, or six years before the Deuteronomic reform, which is mentioned in the second book of Chronicles, chapter 34, verse 3. His program stepped up with the rise to power of Nabopolassar from 625 to 605, who led the Babylonians to independence and brought an effective end to the Assyrian Empire. Religious reform and nationalism went hand in hand as expressions of political independence. In the 18th year of his reign, 621, a discovery in quotation marks was made while the temple was undergoing renovation possibly cleansing it of the um, foreign idols. Discoveries in quotation marks because biblical scholars have some doubts that this was really discovered, but perhaps possibly composed at the time and um, called a discovery in order to give it some legitimacy that this was uh, mosaic writing. The book of the Torah um, which means teaching. You can find all this in 2 Kings, chapters 22 and 23. And the writings were authenticated by going to the prophetess Huldah. The result was that it accelerated and gave direction to the reform already underway. It went beyond the clemency of the temple to the abolition of high places, which had been hotbeds of pagan practices even extended to the destruction of the rival temple at Bethel, which was still nominally under Assyrian control after they wiped out the kingdom of Israel in the north. By concentrating worship in Jerusalem, it could be rigorously watched by the official priesthood and kept pure. A conservative reform that sought to preserve distinctive elements of their faith without capitulating to the pressures of the world around them. And uh, it doesn't take much imagination to realize that this is still a problem today. Exactly what we're going through in this country. How to maintain one's spiritual integrity without capitulating to the cultural problems and pressures. <clears throat> the book of Deuteronomy is um, a body of law founded in Deuteronomy chapters 12 to 26, 
reflecting a northern Israel covenant tradition. In other words, it refers to the sacred mountain as Horeb instead of Sinai. And the natives were called Amorites versus Canaanites. It, it um, purports to be Moses' farewell address to Israel and sermonic in style. It is quoted more than any other book in the New Testament. Just look at Jesus' answers to the tempter. This name comes from what was known as the Septuagint, which is a translation of the Old Testament into Greek in Alexandria, Egypt, in the years just before our Lord's time, because so many Jews were in Egypt who did not speak Hebrew. And um, became known as the Septuagint because there were 70 scholars which put it together. The official title is to Deuteronomion Tuto in Greek, which means this second law, which points to the central theme, the second or repetition of the original law given by Moses. The Hebrew title is These Are the Words, the operating phrase of the book in chapter 1, verse 1. Now, scholars feel that these are not the literal words of Moses, although it exudes an atmosphere of mosaic faith informed and interpreted by the prophetic tradition. It's obvious influences of the prophetic tradition on the, this book. It's a program of reform, not innovation, that is not narrowly confined to legal matters. It is an exposition of... Israel's covenant faith directed to the whole community, not just specialists such as lawyers or priests. It includes both the good news of what God has done and what he expects in return from those he has redeemed. It is not really addressed to a generation long ago, as if this had been Moses, it would have been a generation long ago, but to this day, in other words, what Mosaic Law means for those who stand before God now. It's not a retreat into some golden past, for it deals with the challenge of the present crisis. Israel is to love God one way, with unswerving, complete, steadfast loyalty. Emphasis on love is one of the characteristic themes of Deuteronomy. For example, so-called Day of Jubilee, which is uh, specified which orders a freeing of slaves every seven years. It presumes that Israel is chosen by God, meaning that they are a holy people. And there's a twofold meaning of holy. One, Israel has been separated from the nations. It's not to be like the neighbors. And secondly, it is separated for special service to God. Her election which was unmerited, should evoke consecrated service rather than pride at being God's favorite. To be humble means realizing that life is not something we ultimately control, but a gift received only by those who acknowledge their content, constant dependence upon God. Moreover, God's activity on behalf of the weak and oppressed um, 
such as the Hebrews in Egypt who were slaves, shows the way that Israel herself should walk, imitatio dei, the imitation of God. The righteousness of God demands first, abolition of anything that defiles the community, therefore their obsession with purity, purification. Secondly, um, a positive um, command to imitate God's dealings so that a spirit of brotherly love and solidarity can prevail in the community. And the dietary laws were designed to do precisely that. Now, <clears throat> the weaknesses of, of the reform. Reform, even when supported by government or popular approval, lasts only as long as inward change in the hearts of the people persists. Even Jeremiah seems to have turned against the reform when he realized what was happening. It had degenerated into a defiant nationalism and a merely external piety. The so-called covenant with David had replaced the covenant with Moses in the minds of the people. The Torah is written in, a, in the book is no substitute for God's law being written on the heart. And comment is made by that on Jeremiah in chapter 8, verse 8. How can you say we are wise? We have the law of the Lord. Why, that has been changed into falsehood by the lying pen of the scribes. Also, the reform had a theological defect. God is confined to a straitjacket. Obey and all will go well with you. Disobey will bring hardship. Now, this is an idea that goes beyond just religious conviction. It seems to be deeply rooted in the human consciousness. I had a lady in one of my parishes whose three-year-old daughter was playing with her father's, with her father's cigarette lighter in the bedroom with her, um, the, uh, her 18-month-old baby sister was in a crib. And without thinking, she set fire to the crib, and uh, the result was that um, the child had to be taken to the hospital. When I got called in, um, the mother said that the doctors were not optimistic about the outcome. And while I was there, sure enough, the doctor came out and said, well, it's over. And the very first words out of her mouth were, I'm being punished by God for my sins. And I could not help but say, now wait a minute. What kind of a monster do you think God is that he would punish an 18-month-old girl uh, perfectly innocent just to get at you? She said, oh, I never thought of it that way. Um, this characteristic of Deuteronomy is something that just runs through uh, automatic consciousness um, and that's why the book of Job was written to refute the whole principle of the book of Deuteronomy Job was a spotless innocent person 
who all kinds of bad things happened. And it was trying to explain that is just of the book. Um, and it's still true that bad things happen to good people. Now, <clears throat> disillusionment was set in in 612 when the Assyrian capital of Nineveh fell to the combined forces of the Babylonians, Medes, and Scythians. In 609, Pharaoh Necho marched north to salvage what was left of the Assyrian Empire so that it could act as a buffer. King Josiah tried to intercept him at Megiddo, but was defeated and executed as a Babylonian conspirator. Judah became a vassal of Egypt until the Battle of Carchemish in 605, when Necho's army was decisively defeated by Babylonian forces, commanded by the crown prince Nebuchadnezzar II. Judas now fell under a yoke, the Babylonian war yoke, no lighter or merciful than the Assyrian one had been. Here we come to Jeremiah in the fall of Jerusalem. Jehoahaz became king upon the death of Josiah. Okay, we've got a break coming up here. I'll come back with that. It's a good place to break. See you shortly. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. Are you satisfied with your life? Do you know that more should be possible? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the creators of Access, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane here. Our program offers pragmatic tools to change things in your life that you haven't been able to change until now. What if all of life could come to you with ease, joy, and glory? Tune in to Access Consciousness Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Who are you, really? Are you the person you want to be, or are you the person that others want you to be? Think about that. We don't always recognize our gifts and potential because we stick to old methods of being and do what others in our lives tell us. It's time to break through. Listen for Rediscovering the Magic of Being with Marja. Each program connects you back to whom you were meant to be every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Succeed. 
tune into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Welcome back. Uh, we were just getting ready to pick up with the fall of Jerusalem and the prophet Jeremiah. Now, <clears throat> Jehoahaz became king on the death of Josiah, who was executed by the Egyptians. But he was replaced after only three months by his brother Eliakim, whose name was changed to Jehoiakim by Pharaoh Necho. Don't forget they were vassals of Egypt at this point. He was cruel, selfish, and indulgent. He forced his people to build his palaces. He believed in living luxuriously and followed a pro-Egyptian policy. He's the only recorded monarch in the Old Testament who dared to execute a prophet of Yahweh by the name of Uriah. That account can be found in the 26th chapter of Jeremiah, chapters 22 to 23. The only thing that saved Jeremiah from a similar fate was that he had influential friends at court. Now, Jehoiakim revived the paganism his father had tried to abolish, reintroduced child sacrifice, idols in temple, etc., and the social abominations associated with that religious outlook. And there's been some speculations whether or not there was a central connection with pagan religion and what um, the Hebrew tradition would consider social abominations because the the pagan religion had no ethical dimension to it whatsoever. Primarily concerned with placating the divinities. Um, After the Battle of Carchemish in 605, in which the Egyptians were defeated by the Babylonians. He submitted to the Babylonian yoke resentfully, took advantage of a momentary Babylonian weakness in 601 to rebel and refuse tribute. That set in motion the invasion of 698-697, although he had died three months before his son and successor was forced to capitulate. They captured Jerusalem, the son was taken into exile and replaced by Zedekiah, whose name had been changed by Nebuchadnezzar from Mataniah. And this is where we get Jeremiah's famous temple sermon. The changes after Josiah's death prompted a new phase in Jeremiah's career. He now stood in the temple itself and denounced the evils of the day. Relying on formalities of worship cannot prevent God's judgment on the temple and the city. For it is not sacrifice that God demands, but a loyal and obedient heart. This act provoked outrage. Why? Because it was generally considered that the word of a prophet had the power of God behind it, and could bring about what he was saying. The word of a prophet had the power to create 
the reality that made him something of a traitor. But there were two things that saved him. One, there were some elders who cited the presence of Micah, who had prophesied the fall of the temple and the city some 100 years before. And secondly, the support of Ahikam, a prince of great political influence in the court. Now, the biggest opponents of Jeremiah's message were the popular prophets who promised a shortcut to divine restoration without going through the Valley of Judgment. It was these spiritual quacks that Jeremiah was referring to when he complained of those who cry peace, peace when there is no peace and offer the people remedies that do not get to the root of the trouble. According to Jeremiah, God's word does not bring peace, but a sword that cuts like a surgeon's knife to make possible a deep inner healing. Agonizing over the people's incurable sickness, he anticipates modern depth psychology by pointing out how we can rationalize our real motives. And that can be found in chapter 17, verse 9. More tortuous than all else is the human heart, beyond remedy. Who can understand it? Sin had become so natural to them that they didn't even know how to blush for it. He mentions that in chapter 8, verse 12. They are odious. They have done abominable things. Yet they are not at all ashamed. They know not how to blush. Hence they shall be among those who fall. At their time of punishment they shall go down, says the Lord. And you see a lot of that today, as a matter of fact. People who no longer blush at things that would have created a great outcry not very long ago. Um, the only possible outcome Jeremiah can, came to the conclusion was crisis and catastrophe. By watching a potter mold clay on a wheel, Jeremiah saw an analogy. By refusing to be molded by God, and by persistent backsliding, people made it necessary for God to reshape them. Their recalcitrance, not God's arbitrary wrath, makes it inevitable. Further, God's intervention, intervention will not be active so much as passive. He will simply withdraw from them and leave them to the consequences of their own folly. And I think that certainly applies today. Um, People expect to be zapped if they step out of line. But God says, no, I'll just let you do your thing and see what happens. Knowing it's going to end in a um, disaster. Jeremiah's primary point in all of this is that divine sovereignty does not erase human responsibility. And that's where we get this, uh, the Christian idea of um, free will. God has his preferences for us. He knows what's best for us. But we also have the right to make fools of ourselves and bring disaster upon ourselves. And he lets us do it. Now, the book of Jeremiah is not a book in the modern sense, but more of an anthology. 
There are four basic sections. Chapters 1 through 25 consist of prophetic oracles with bits of biological material inserted. Chapters 26 to 45 consists of biological narratives, I'm sorry, biographical narratives, marriages about uh, Jeremiah interspersed with occasional prophetic sermons. It's written in the third person. Chapters 46 to 51 are oracles against the nations. Some material clearly comes from other writers here. And chapter 52 is the historical conclusion taken from 2 Kings chapter 24, beginning with verse 18 through chapter 25, verse 30, which describes the fall of Jerusalem. Section 1 is poetic in form. It's a mournful cadence appropriate for expressing sorrow. Section 2 is prose. Thus, there are two main sources. Jeremiah's oracles and the memoirs of Baruch, Jeremiah's faithful secretary. This brings us to the famous Jeremiah's confessions. After the temple sermon, Jeremiah had to go underground. It is from this period of silence that the devotional lyrics called the confessions is thought to come. There is nothing like it in other religious literature of antiquity until you get to St. Augustine's Confessions in 400 AD. Jeremiah identified personally with his message more than any other Old Testament prophet, so we know more about the man. He was a quiet and sensitive person by nature who resisted what he had to do. He not only proclaimed God's word, he also struggled against it. He complains about his lot, cries out for vindication, and even hurls defiance at God. Set against everyone and sitting alone, he underwent all the trials of faith, doubt, rebellion, self-pity, and despair. There are six passages in all. I'm just going to take one from the third passage. It's Jeremiah 15, verses 10 to 21. Woe to me, mother, that you gave me birth, a man of strife and contention to all the land. I neither borrow nor lend, yet all curse me. Tell me, Lord, have I not served you for their good? Have I not interceded with you in the time of misfortune and anguish? You know I have. Remember me, Lord, visit me, and avenge me on my persecutors. Because of your loving, long-suffering, banish me not. Know that for you I have borne insult. When I found your words, I devoured them. They became my joy and the happiness of my heart. Because I bore your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit celebrating in the circle of merrymakers. Under the weight of your hand, I sat alone. Because you filled me with indignation. Why is my pain continuous? My wound incurable? refusing to be healed. You have indeed become for me a treacherous brook, 
His water do not abide. Thus the Lord answered me, If you repent so that I restore you, in my presence you shall stand. If you bring forth the precious without the vile, you shall be my mouthpiece. Then it shall be they who turn to you, and you shall not turn to them. And I will make you toward the people a solid wall of brass. Though they fight against you, they shall not prevail. For I am with you to deliver you and rescue you, says the Lord. I will free you from the hand of the wicked and rescue you from the grasp of the violent. Now, these are the outbursts of a deeply wounded heart. And I sometimes tell people, if sometimes you get angry with God, you're in company with some of the best of the religious minds of the Old Testament, specifically Jeremiah. Priests in his hometown of Anathoth and even members of his own family had plotted against his life. He protests that God has made a laughing stock of him by filling him with an inner fire that will not let him keep silent. He also protests that God has deceived him and curses the day he was born. God's response to all of this? Self-pity is only the other side of self-righteousness. Jeremiah's complaints are based on the same self-centered attitude he was criticizing in others. He who was summoning others to repentance himself stood in need of inward purification. And this is uh, the experience, I think, of the, the saints throughout the centuries. Now comes the burning of the scroll. After Carchemish in 605, in which the um, Assyrians were defeated once and for all, it became clear that the threat from the north, which Jeremiah had referred to in vague terms before, was Babylon. So he dictated his reflections to Baruch, his secretary, and since he was banned from the temple, sent Baruch to the temple to read his scroll aloud to the people. It was confiscated and read aloud before Jehoiakim, who contemptuously cut off every few lines as they were read and threw the pieces into the fire. In hiding, Jeremiah redictated the contents of the scroll and added much more, uh, which became the basis for what we call section one of his, his book. This was a turning point in Jeremiah's career. Now, Zedekiah, who was put on the throne by the Babylonians, he was their stooge, as it were, was a mild and benevolent ruler in contrast to the despotic Jehoiakim, but also weak and vacillating, easily swayed by those around him. This gave Jeremiah the chance to appear in public again, and now with new prestige for his prophecies had been confirmed by the invasion of 698-97. The cream of the leadership, including the prophet Ezekiel, had, who had not started his public career yet, had been shipped off to Babylon. Now, the whole idea, again, I, uh, this um, sh uh, sending the whole population to... Uh, no, 
back to Babylon, was to head off any future revolts. Uh, as long as people were on their traditional God-given land, so to speak, they were going to be very jealous for it and often break out in revolution to try and throw off the yoke of either um, whoever was the empire at the time. And when they got to Babylon, of course, there was no land for being farmers. It was all taken by the uh, pre-existing population. So that was the beginning for the, the Jews of becoming bankers and uh, shopkeepers, people who did not have to live, uh, uh, depend upon living off the land. Um, it was also led to the beginning of the um, synagogue, since there was no temple for them to use in Babylon. They continued their worship by devising the synagogue as, as a way to continue to worship Yahweh. Um, Jeremiah had a vision of two baskets of figs placed before the temple. The first, with good figs, represented the exiles with whom the future lay. God would make them his covenant people. The other, with bad figs unfit to eat, represent the current leadership and people left behind who would be driven out of the land. Okay, we've got another break at this point, and I'll try to finish up with all this before we call it a day. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. The White House Doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to transform your life. Start by tuning in to The Glenise Show with Glenise Hughes. Glenise combines business, relationships, wealth, life, and a whole lot of magic to create abundance and prosperity in every part of your life. It's all done through straight and often frank discussions in the best way that Glenise knows how. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Master your life with The Glenise Show. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. 
To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. We were talking about uh, Jeremiah's vision of the um, two baskets of figs placed before the temple. One had good figs and the others had figs unfit to eat. He felt that the good figs represented the exiles shipped off to Babylon. The future of the nation and religious future of the nation lived, resided with them. Um, the current leadership and the people left behind would be driven out which indeed was what happened. In 594, Zedekiah was tempted to join a conspiracy instigated by Egypt to revolt. But Jeremiah spoke against it like Isaiah had, neither as a collaborationist with the enemy nor as a pacifist, but as one who saw Babylon as God's instrument for punishing his people. To fight against Babylon was to fight against God himself. Zephaniah held off, uh, but could not resist nationalistic pressures when a new pharaoh came to the throne in 588. During the siege of Jerusalem that followed, Jeremiah urged the people to surrender. When the Babylonians turned away to meet an Egyptian army threatening their rear, Jeremiah insisted this not mean deliverance. They would be back to finish the job. At that point, he was imprisoned on charges of treason. At one point, Zedekiah yielded to demands that Jeremiah be killed and allowed him to be left to die at the bottom of a cistern used for catching rain. However, Zedekiah could not bring himself to go through with it and had Jeremiah rescued and returned to prison. It was shortly after that that the Babylonians returned, captured the city, burned it, including the temple, and looted it of all of the precious treasures and took most of the populace back into exile. Zedekiah was caught trying to escape, disguised as a peasant. And he was forced to watch the execution of his own sons before having his eyes put out and being taken to Babylon in chains. Gives you an idea of what the Babylonians were like. Now comes the um, mention of a new covenant. While still in prison, Jeremiah looked beyond the disaster to the set of a, to the establishment of a new covenant, which can be found in Jeremiah chapter one. Out of rest, the people would be saved for a new relationship with God. First. Like the Mosaic Covenant, it will involve man's response and faith to what God does, not a bilateral agreement between partners. Um, unlike the Old Covenant, it will not be broken. A new kind of history begins. It will be new in the sense that it will fulfill the original intent of the Old. Now the Torah will be written upon the heart, not stone tablets or in books will bring into being a new community wherein individuals will have an intimate knowledge of God. It will rest upon divine forgiveness. 
Pardon will follow where God's discipline succeeds in shattering their pride and self-sufficiency. God's purpose in history will be consummated in the last things, although the coming of the new age cannot be dated on the calendar. This future is the basis for all hope. Now, in conclusion, Jeremiah was released from prison by the Babylonians and given their protection. But after they pulled out, he was kidnapped by a few remaining zealots and taken to Egypt. What happened after that is unknown, although it is presumed he was killed. The main theme of his message is that God's action in history is twofold, a tearing down and a building up. He saw the fall of Judah as the work of God, not just Babylon, who, like a potter, had shattered the imperfect vessel in order to create another better clay. How does this compare with their own spiritual lives? Um, it has been my experience that um, when things have gone really bad and I'm experiencing something traumatic and I often tell people I don't know if anyone who gets through life that is not hit, hit over the head by a sledgehammer at some point and knocked senseless knocked to their knees where they can't know what to do know where to turn um, Jeremiah would see this as the dismantling of um, an inadequate spirituality necessary for any kind of spiritual growth uh, and development healthy spiritual growth and development and I must say that's been my experience I've always been a very independent hard-headed person and so God has quite often like he did with the uh, Israelites uh, let me do my own thing until it ends up in a disaster and when I finally got tired of hitting brick walls I finally got to the point where I said alright Lord let's do it your way and lo and behold, that's when all the doors started to fly open. And it was confirmation for me that I had at last struck out on a productive direction in my life. And I think that um, we need to re see that when things really get bad. There's a spiritual opportunity there. Um to learn, lick our wounds, and recognize that um, we do not have all the answers. And that leads to humility. The two ways of learning humility is not easy. One is to be humiliated, and that's okay, but the, the hazard there is that we won't learn from it. 
instead of learning from it, some people simply become angry and bitter at people. And I've known people like that who become uh, very unpleasant to be around. The other alternative for learning humility that lasts is to be complimented to an extent that we realize we don't deserve. That's a very humbling experience. For example, I went through Navy ROTC in college and my junior, between summer between my junior and senior years, we were sent as midshipmen uh, to San Diego, six week um, tour of duty on um, ships. But before we left, there was a note on the bulletin board. Anybody who'd want to sign up for a ride on a submarine, three day ride on a submarine, um, could do so. Which I signed up for it. And it, the three days took place just before our regular duty began. It went from San Diego to San Francisco. It was an old World War II uh, fleet-type boat, uh, diesel and electric. And I had never set foot on a Navy vessel before, in my first experience. And... I watched, I went up to the conning tower just to watch, to be an observer, fly on the wall, to see what they did and how they did it. And after the uh, sub had cast off from the wharf and started to get underway, the captain suddenly turned around to me and said, Mr. Hallman, you have the con, and disappeared down the hatch put me in charge of driving this whole thing. I had about 260 people on board. Um, and I just about, I think I did, I think I wet my pants. It was, it was unbelievable. But I made the best of it, um, giving directions for changing course, to stay between the buoys on the channel, making sure I don't run around with something. And by the grace of God, we got beyond the final buoy. And the XO, who I hadn't noticed, had been standing behind me the whole time. He could have jumped in to prevent disaster if I had done something really bad. But he didn't. And he took charge, and I went down the hatch and sat on my bunk, just breaking out in a sweat, realizing... um, what an enormous chance that captain took putting the ship in the hands of somebody who knew absolutely nothing about it. And it, it's a humbling experience. And it makes you appreciate what you don't know. And that um, sometimes the only real way to know is um, baptism by fire some people call it but um, that's just to make the point of what Jeremiah was talking about 
how he could see the Babylonians as God's instrument for teaching his people a lesson that they obviously could not learn any other way. And sometimes that can be said for us, we get so self-confident, we know it all, that um, it, it takes a disaster to make us wake up and realize, unless we want to get angry and bitter, that we're not in charge of our destiny quite often. It's um, at the hands of other people who caused the change of events far more than we could. So I want to leave you with that thought today, how something that can be a very painful experience, if we can get off our high horse and accept it, can be the beginning of a much healthier spiritual life than we ever had before. That's why I say, you know, we human beings are hopelessly spiritual. Even the people who deny spirituality um, is not a question of what are we going to worship, but how adequate our scheme is. And sometimes we have to learn the hard way that um, God knows things better than we do. That's all for today. Uh, thank you for listening and hope to see you again next week. Ciao for now. Thank you for tuning in to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Please join Father John Holloman again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope you have a very good week.